Good morning. morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Good. Hey, my name is Tom, one of the pastors here. It's an absolute pleasure and joy uh, to be with each and every one of you this fine morning. Uh, I've got a couple announcements before we get started. Uh, The first one is this. We have a Covenant Partner class on September 18th. And so Covenant Partner, is that's basically a member here at Grace Point Church. We want you to become a member. We think it's important to be a member. That way you're accounted for. That way uh, we can pastor and shepherd you well. And so if you would join us, it's at 2 p.m. right in here. It's about three hours long. Sometimes we can do it shorter than that. Uh, But that way you get to learn all the ins and outs of Grace Point Church, what we're about, what we're not about, why we do what we do, why we don't do what we don't do, the leadership. It gives you an opportunity to ask questions, our theology, all sorts of things. So make sure you sign up for that soon, uh, ASAP as possible. And uh, there's child care for that available as well. Uh, get out at Centerpoint and sign up there or gracepointvegas.com. Second thing is, I just found out we're having, well, I didn't find this part out. I'll tell you in a minute. I just found out we're having a marriage conference. Wow, wouldn't that be something? I just found this out. We're having a marriage conference on October the 1st. I just found out that it's at 50% capacity so far. And so make sure you get on top of that. This is for people who are engaged, who are married, who've been married for a short while, a long while, whose marriages are amazing, whose marriages are not so amazing, and everything in between. Uh, so make sure you sign up for that. You will have child care provided all day long. Did you hear me that, parents of children? All day long. So make sure you sign up and do that as well. Sound good? What's wrong with you? It's child care in a loving environment where you get to learn about marriage. Anyway, let's get started. Um, I am a little bit older than a few, a few of you. Um, I am a little bit older, and I remember as a young boy, my father going out and buying this device called a VCR. Do you remember those? Yes. Remember, do you remember before that going to your local little uh, video store, which we had a really, really small one in our town, and you could rent one, and it came in like a bag, and like you would just rent the whole thing, but then like, it got to the point where you could buy one, and I think, I'm not even kidding, I think that thing back in the 80s was like, I don't know, six, $700. It was really, really expensive. And one of the big features about a VCR, now some of you are like, what's a VCR? You will have to ask an older person or Google what a VCR, is it video cassette recorder? Yes. Nailed it. Okay. And so one of, the, one of the great features about a VCR is that you could record a show. This was unheard of. And so uh, you, could, you could record a show, but there was a, uh, um, a procedure that you have to do, a very involved procedure in order for this thing to record a show while you are away. Think pre, like a pre-DVR, like it's way back there. And so what you would have to do is you would have to make sure that the television was set up on the right input, you had to make sure uh, at the right channel and make sure it was on the right channel that it was going to record, the VCR was. So the television would be on three or four, remember that? And then the VCR would be on whatever channel you're going to record, not confusing at all. But the main thing is, don't ever miss this. The main thing, the most counterintuitive, confusing thing about a VCR is this. You must make sure the VCR is off, and that way it will come on when it's time to record the show. Remember that? And I remember being that dumb little kid that in the morning, because there was only cartoons on in the morning and the afternoon, all right? We didn't have cable or anything fancy like that. And I remember watching my cartoons before school and accidentally leaving the VCR on. Hell hath no fury with my mother, who loved her story, and her favorite story, as they would call it, was Days of Our Lives. You remember that show? It's been on for like 120 years. It's been on for a long time, longer than television. And uh, I remember as a kid during uh, the summertime, again, like there's just cartoons in the morning and the afternoon, and there's nothing going on, and mom would sit down to watch her, her story, Days of Our Lives. And I remember as a kid watching that show. That show was intense and insane. Do you remember? It's still on, I think, right? 
And like on that show, known as a soap opera, Days of Our Lives, like you'd have things like, you know, there'd be sex scandals on there, there'd be cheating, there'd be lying and stealing. I remember one little, um, one, one thing going on the show was Marlena was demon possessed. Remember that? There were two Johns, but wait, one of them is a Roman. And like, it was just some bizarre, like, I remember that stuff. Victor Kyriakos was dead. No, he's alive. I mean, like all this scandal and all that going on. Uh, my mother loved those. I don't know if she watches them anymore, but I just, I thought about the writers. Think about being a writer for a show like that. You're writing five one-hour episodes per week forever, because that show doesn't take a break. Am I right? Never does. It's been on, like I said, 184 years. It's a long time. Today, we're continuing our walk through our brand new teaching series to the book of Esther. And let me just be really honest. The book of Esther, when you read it, it feels like days of our lives. It's like a soap opera right there in the Bible. And sometimes when we read the Bible, we think, well, they're not sophisticated people like me and they're not technologically advanced like me. But here's the reality. They're human like me. And their heart over 2,000 years ago is the same heart that I have right now. Am I right? And so there's lots of scandal and a lot of stuff going on there. And so um, we're going to keep walking through this story. I will give you a little bit of a kind of a refresher from last week. And by the way, we began it last week. So if you missed any of that, you can go to our website, go to YouTube or wherever, and you get caught up. But uh, let me help us kind of get up to speed where we're at. So previously on days of our Persian life, it went like this. <laughs> we, met, we met the king, King Ahasuerus, his most powerful, wealthy guy in the known world at the time. He was known in that, in that uh, time period as the king of kings. He throws a party for 180 days. That's a six-month, half-year-long party for all the influencers of the time. And then after that, he throws a seven-day party for the, you know, the people, the average Joes and Janes there. He was thought of as a god among the people. And the people, when they would be in his presence, it would be like being in the presence of a god who walked among, among them. He wanted to be the, the, just the, the just worship and the person uh, that everyone just adored and all that. Now, please keep in mind, as we go through this book, the king here is a joke. I mean, he's, he was real. He lived in real history, but he's, he's a parody. And so basically, he is the antithesis of who the real king of kings is, and that would be? And so when you see King Ahasuerus do something or say something, you could almost instinctually think opposite of like, okay, this is what Jesus is like, the opposite of that. And so last week, we were introduced to his queen. Her name was Vashti. Uh, now, remember, in this story I said last week, it has no mention of God, no mention of his word, prophets, prayer, repentance, anything like the rest of the books of the Bible does. It does not. Um, and just remember as well, I need to, I need to uh, submit a correction from last week. I said something wrong. I say a lot of things wrong sometimes. But last week, while I was preaching, I said something wrong. I said, uh, I talked about the book of Esther in chronological order of the Bible, and I said it really belongs around Ezra and Nehemiah. And many of you out there are like, duh, Ty, that's where it's at. Here's what I meant. It's true. If you open up your table of contents, it's like, yeah, Ty, like, way to go, man. What a scholar. It's right there. Look at you, Sherlock. It really belongs, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther belong at the end of the Old Testament. I, th- I believe in Hebrew Bibles there at the end as well, but you can check me out. Yeah, it is. Okay. Uh, it is. So it belongs at the end of the Old Testament story. That's what I meant. So there's your correction as well. I didn't even get any emails on that. I was kind of surprised. But last week we said at that time period in, in God's people's history, it was kind of the low of low, meaning it just felt like there was no God activity then. There were no miracles. Even in this book, I think it's intentional that God is not mentioned. And we said the reason why is because this book, the book of Esther, is about God's providence. And I gave the illustration. God has a visible hand. Think about like when you see his miracles and just his activity that is seen and felt and known. But then God also has this invisible hand, his providence, his sovereignty, where he's always working things out for his glory and our good in the background. Make sense? 
Are we caught up? All right, let's go to the book of Esther. If you've got a Bible, turn to Esther. It's in the middle of your Old Testament where it should be the end, like I said earlier, but that's, it is what it is. Uh, we'll be in chapter 1. We'll start in verse 10. If you don't have a Bible here at Grace Point Church, we always say you're going to need a Bible. We've got English and Spanish up here, out there as well. That's our free gift to you. version has it there as well, and we put it on the screen for you as well, but verse 10. You ready for these names? Here we go. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, hold that, he commanded Mark, Bill number one, Henry, Bill number two, Alan, Zane, and Carl, the seven eunuchs, who's, that's how it's pronounced. Learn your Hebrew. You know, I seriously practiced it, and it, right when I was sitting down, I was like, I'm going to butcher it. Just go for it. The seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring King Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Now, let's go back to verse 10. Let's start with the status of the king or, this, or the, the, the state of the king. It says right here in the text, when the heart of the king was married with wine. What does that mean? Well, it's basically a nice way of saying the king was drunk and about to do a lot of dumb. Anyone in here been in that situation before? Put your hand down. Keep your hand down. Don't raise your hand. Come on. Surely not you. Yeah. So he was, he was, he was hammered. Like he was, he was drunk. That's a really nice way of saying it. Now, why was he drunk? Well, one, he might have liked to get drunk. That's what he did. But if you know a little bit about Persian culture back then, they, uh, when they would have to make major decisions or when big things were going on, what they would do is they would get drunk and they thought the drunker they got, they got in touch with the spirit world, and the spirit world would give them counsel uh, to make wise decisions. It's genius, right? <laughs> like, blackout drunk, I'm going to talk to some spirits. It's amazing. Uh, but just so we're on the same page, make sure we all understand, uh, drunkenness does not lead to wise decisions. Am I right? Doesn't, it doesn't increase or sharpen your uh, uh, decision-making skills. I mean, you think about it, the next day, you, you, you know, a drunk person, next day they wake up and, uh, you know, they realize someone tells them what a mess they've made or, or some, some of the things they did, and then instantly they have something in common with Urkel, remember him? And they say the same thing he says, did I do that? Same thing there. Stop. The text, nor the message, uh, uh, this text, nor the message of this book is about drinking or not drinking or anything like that. So I want to make sure we understand, the Bible, th this part of the text doesn't, however, the Bible does say it's okay to drink. Uh, the Bible says a lot of warnings about drinking, and the Bible always says uh, that drunkenness is a sin. I think that's a way to handle that, but that's another message Boop, for another day. And so now in the text, um, he, he, he commands uh, this team of eunuchs uh, to bring qu the queen uh, to show her off as his prized possession. Now, if you remember from last week, He's been showing off all of his pomp, his glory, his ca you know, castle, his palace, all that kind of stuff. And now he wants to show off his prize possession. It hurts to say that. And that would be his wife, the queen. Now, he asked for the eunuchs to go get her. What is a eunuch, you may ask? Well, a eunuch is a castrated man. If you don't know what castration means, don't Google it. But ask somebody in the medical profession. Uh, but why, why were there eunuchs taking care of the wives? Because he would have multiple wives, harems, and all that kind of stuff. Why would they do that? 
the thought is that um, these, these women, these wives, were looked at as possessions of the king, and they might not see the king maybe once or twice in their whole lifetime because he had hundreds, if not thousands of them, and he would have these eunuchs attend to them to make sure they didn't fall in love with another man and invoke his jealousy and invoke his wrath upon all of them. And so he just kind of safeguarded himself there by having eunuchs take care of that. So anyway, these eunuchs, they go to the queen and they say, hey, the king, you know, he's a little tipsy right now. He is uh, demanding, commanding you to come in front of all these drunk men, hundreds if not thousands of them, and show off. Scholars tell us, when you look back at the text, it says to bring her royal crown. Scholars tell us that his, his request was her to come in completely naked, except we're only wearing a crown. Classy guy, right? <laughs> what a guy. Um, that's, that's not right. Can we just agree with that? That's like, that's... That's not good. And you look into uh, Persian history, uh, Vashti's summons likely would lead to some sort of sexual humiliation or, or violence. Uh, Persian, Persia, generally speaking, was not a fun place to be a, a woman. Uh, women, including clean, queen, were looked as, at as property. I mean, she probably lived a well-pampered life uh, as being in his harem and all that. But at the end of the day, she was a, a sex slave. It was, it was terrible. She, was, she and the other women were just at the whims and whatever the desires of the king and his evil was. And so uh, this, this was the life uh, that they had li- lived. And now remember, uh, Vashti is the queen, the wife of Ahasuerus. And uh, as, as a wife, as a spouse, uh, great, being a great spouse, or what the Bible kind of lays out of how to be a good spouse, there's two kind of things that are involved, uh, being a friend and being a lover. You ever read the book of uh, Song of Solomon's or uh, Ephesians or even the Proverbs and Psalms, it says a lot about being a friend and lover. Now, would you consider this husband a good friend to his wife? Not with that request. Not at all. He is, he is commanding her to come in front of all these drunk men to be demoralized, dehumanized, to be oogled at, to be humiliated, to potentially, to potentially be sexually violated or even raped. This is what his request is. Could you imagine, and I want us all, male and female, put yourself in those shoes, although she was not wearing any, put yourself in those shoes and imagine her scenario. She's with the ladies, because in the the first uh, message last week, we found out she's off somewhere else. She hears the music pumping down the hallway. I don't know what it sounded like back then. She hears lots of people laughing and joking. She hears the gold chalices being clanked together. She probably hears some puking down the hall because people have well overserved themselves. And all of a sudden, she, she starts to hear this. Vashti, Vashti, Vashti. Could you imagine the sheer terror that she would feel? And all of a sudden, the eunuch pops in and says, hey, uh, it's time. Grab your crown. Take everything else off. It's go time. Like, Could you imagine how just terrifying that had to be? This is not really a message on marriage, but there's a slight implication we can learn here as as husbands. So if you're a husband or a potential future husband in the house, here's an implication. Don't be a drunk. Don't be a drunk and make decisions. Don't be a drunk and demoralize and dehumanize and humiliate your wife. Don't, Don't use your wife as something to be shown off with all your drinking buddies or anything like that. Or let me summarize it all. Husbands, don't be dumb. That's enough of that implication. Verse 12. (laughs) Boy, if you didn't like that, this is going to go over like a lead balloon. But let's keep going. (laughs) This is going to be amazing. Verse 12. King Vashti refused 
to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Now, keep in mind, no one in the kingdom tells this man no. He is known as the king of kings. I mean, he is, a, he is known as the God who walks among them. He is untouchable. He even had like a secret service, and they were called the immortals. And if anyone would get near his crown or get near his throne or get near him, or just if he just got a whim of wanting to kill some people, the immortals will take care of it. No one defies the king and lives to tell about it. You understand that, right? Well, no one except for his wife, Vashti. Now, let's pause. Let's pause. This is where I'm going to get in trouble. Let's pause. Was she right? Don't answer yet. Was she right in refusing his command? Some would say, no, she was not right. Maybe the argument would be, don't our Bibles tell us that wives are supposed to submit to their husband? We see that in Ephesians chapter 5, right? The Bible talks about submitting and honoring and respecting their husbands. And this was not respect to the husband. This probably just publicly humiliated him. So some, some may think that. If you look up some old commentaries, uh, some would say that Vashti is the villain in this situation. She's a stubborn wife, too concerned about her own self, she, that she should have obeyed her husband. Some would say that. Others would say, at her refusal, yeah, that was right. That was a good thing. The husband, the king, he, he's no husband. He's just absolute clown. He deserves the proverbial frying pan upside the head situation there. I'm not condoning spousal abuse, but that is what it is. Remember, the text here gives no moral value on this. It doesn't say this is good or bad. It just tells the story. The Bible does say that a wife should love, respect, honor, and parts obey her husband. It actually uses those words. Some wives would give a hearty amen to that, am I right? Some wives would give a hearty heck to the no on that. I understand that as well. So the question is, was Queen Vashti right in refusing the king? And here's my biblically formed idea and answer on this. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Some of you were kind of nervous, like, oh my gosh, is he going to say no? She should have listened to him. No, she was right to defy him. She was right to say no. I mean, I think she made a very brave decision in saying no. And some may say, well, what about submission? Well, the king was asking her to do something that goes against God's ways and God's laws and also just common sense, right? And so absolutely not. The king, her husband, request was not submission. It was sexual abuse. It was sexual slavery. If you really look at this, I mean, the king himself was out of control. He may be able to be in control of 127 providences, but he couldn't even control himself. Why in the world was his wife listen to her? So she said no for her dignity. She said no for her humanity, for her integrity. And I think she said no for the ladies all around her. I mean, this king is hammered, barking out commands, and she says no, and he is humiliated and stops dead in his tracks. I mean, think about it. He wanted to parade her around in front of all of his drunk buddies. Her beauty, biblically speaking, is only for herself in th these ways and for her husband, not for everyone else to be put on a, a spectacle. Men, listen to me. Our wives are not to be held around our arms so we can go show them off and parade them around our buddies. Like, look, look at how great I am as a guy. Look how amazing that I am. Look how valiant I am. I got this pretty woman. Look, man, you just overpunted your coverage. Is that a football term, right? Is that right? Is that right? <laughs> I don't know football, but it sounded good when I said it. <laughs> you are out of your league. Maybe that's what it means. She is not, I mean, enjoy her beauty, enjoy that together. But that is not, like, that's not for you to like a bragging point. That's exactly what he is doing right here. Listen, 
I will, I will argue this to my grave, that a biblical view of marriage has a husband and a wife as friends and lovers. Friends and lovers. You think about in your marriage, times that are really, really tough, it's probably because you forgot how to be friends. And that happens in marriage sometimes. You got to work really hard at it. Now, if the king was the friend of his wife, the queen, he would have never asked her to do this. Even if he was drunk and he did it the next day, he should have woke up and repented, begged for forgiveness and bought her a new car or something like that, right? But no, he's not a friend. Why? Because friends don't ask friends to sin like that. Friends would never subject a friend to that. And so being a husband to wife, he never should have done this. Listen, the main point of this story is not about marriage. The main point of this story is all about God's sovereignty. However, it might be important for us to pull a little bit of application and implication from this situation. So let's talk just a little bit about it because it's really going to open up in just a minute. And if we don't talk about it, it might lead to a little bit of confusion. So let's talk about submission. The Bible does talk about submission, wives submitting to husbands. It does not say women submit to men. Can I say that one more time? The Bible is not out there saying all you women in the world submit to all of us men in the world. No, the Bible does not say like that. It's not that at all. But men, if we want to be respected by our wives and we want submission, then we must be respectable men. We must be. And, and if, if we got really honest, there may be uh, maybe some of us here that are not very respectable. You just may not. You might be the runaround husband, the porn looker at her husband, the liar, the lazy, the only time around you husband. I always want to keep my hands and grope you husband. That's not a biblical picture of a wife submitting to that. You wonder why submission is not working in your home. It might be because of that. Listen, submission, Tim and I, Pastor Tim and I were talking about this the other day. Submission is not something that you take from someone. It's something that is given. And husbands, when we emulate Jesus, because that's where we get our picture from. Because remember, in Ephesians chapter 5, it says, men, it says, husbands, lead your wives. Well, how are we supposed to leave our, lead our wives? The Bible keeps on talking right there in Ephesians 5, like Jesus. How did Jesus lead, lead his wife, the, the, the bride, the, the church? How did he do it? Sacrificially, lovingly. And so laying down your life. So husbands, we're called to lay down our, our lives for our wives. That means we put them first. Does that make sense? That we're, the Bible talks about in Ephesians 5 about washing them with the word and protecting them and all that. It is our charge and our call as husbands to do that. And when we do that, it seems like this whole submission and leading thing just begins to, to work together. It begins to complement one another. Wives, you're called to be the husband's helper. Some of you hear that like that sounds awful. It says two things. Number one, the husband needs help. There was your amen right there. Your husband needs help. Number two, you know who else is called the helper in the Bible? God himself. And so you're in good company as well. And when we start to live within those biblical roles where we as husbands are trying our best, imperfectly as we are, of emulating Jesus and loving our wives well and washing them with the word and living sacrificially and all that kind of stuff, it seems like those things begin to work hand in hand. But wives, there, there may be times where your husband asks you to do something that's sinful or just whatever. And like, there are times where will say, no, I obey God first. Any authority there is, is, is given from God. So I obey God and God first. And that's just is what it is. Does this make sense? I know, again, some, some of my like, I like that. And some like, I really don't like that. 
Listen, if we have to, if we have to wield the Bible around in our homes of like, submit, the Bible says submit, and you're standing in your kitchen with your wooden spoons, and where's my dinner? Submit. So you got it all wrong. You got it all wrong. And men, I want to be gracious. There, there's grace for you. And for some of you men, I know this, you have no idea what it means to be probably a man, like a godly man, and you probably have no idea what it means to be a husband. You were given poor examples, or you just like, that's just something that's just not in your wheelhouse. Listen, listen. That's why we have our men's group on Saturday mornings. They're there to help you. That's why we have community groups. That's why we have this church as part of the reason why there are other men there as well. Go to them and say, hey, I need help. I know you can come sit down with us for an hour, one of the pastors, and we're just there for an hour, but you need someone in your life on the daily helping you, walking you through this, and asking them a lot of questions. But I digress because this message is not about a marriage lesson. I can't help myself. All that to say, all that to say is Vashti said no, and I think it's okay. Now, that no set a lot of things in motion. So I love it. It's like God is, God is doing something through that no. Listen to what uh, Scottish uh, theologian minister said, Alexander White. He said this, The sacred writer makes us respect Queen Vashti amid all her disgusting surroundings. Whatever the royal order that came to her out of the banquet hall exactly was, the brave queen refused to obey it. Her beauty was her own and her husband's. It was not for open show among hundreds of half-drunk men. And in the long run, the result of that night's evil work was that Vashti was dismissed into disgrace and banished. Only let us take heed to note that the sacred writer's whole point is this, that the divine hand, that's that invisible hand, was at all times overruling a hazardous brutality. He was working. Uh, there's a proverb, one of my favorite proverbs, that talks about the king's heart is like water in God's hands. He can turn it anywhere he wants to, and that's what he's doing right here. And so this sets the king in a spiral. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know how to handle the situation. So he goes to all of his counselors. He's like, hey, guys, I need some good counsel. I need some wise counsel. And so they're going to give him some counsel. Let's see if it's good counsel or not. Do you think it's going to be good counsel? <laughs> Let's see. Verse 13. <laughs> Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, some believe they were like the magi, kind of like astrologers or something like that. Uh, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him had been Karshina, Shethar, Admetha, Tarshish, Meriz, Marshina, Memukin. Took me a second. Memukin. The seven princes of Persia media who saw the king's face and sat in the, the kingdom. According to the law... What is to be done with Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. So he's basically like, hey, council, let's get around. She did not do what I told her to do. I, can't, I, just, I can only imagine in this moment this powerful king, the king of all kings, feels powerless. There's nothing he can do about it. So what is the law going to say? Well, let's see. Verse 16. Then uh, make you, uh, I'm going to get it wrong every time. Then Mark said, it's like my mouth doesn't, Mimucan, come on, Ty, it's like mucus, Mimucan, it's gross, Mimucan, said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the people or in all the providences of King Ahasuerus. Side note, uh, if you're ever in an argument, uh, this is called a global statement, <laughs> He used the word all, all the people and all everywhere. It's going to be bad for all people. Uh, whoa, man. 
this got out of hand really quick, didn't it? Like this had become a crisis of national defense of like when one woman defies a husband, it's a, it's a national crisis is what's going on here. Now, why? What the, why, why all the severity? Why is a council member making such a big deal out of it? Maybe they're playing smart. Uh, if they exaggerate this and the king has to rely on them, then they got a little bit of job security. That's a, that's a holy speculation there maybe. But let's see. Look at verse 17. But the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Man, okay. Since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. Verse 18. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. And let me, let me translate. They're, they're, they're nervous. They're like, oh my gosh, all these women are going to start thinking for themselves. And they're not going to do exactly what the men want them to do. And when that happens, they're going to sink our battleship. It's all bad. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> We're in trouble. It's a national crisis. Now, um, notice in verse 17 and 18, there's two types of women described there. Verse 17, it just used the word women, like, like just the people, the ladies of the land. And uh, verse 18, it says the, the, the noble women. What? Why? Why, did, why does he say the noble women? I can speculate. Maybe Mamukin is having a little trouble at home, and with the note because it would be a noble one would be his wife. Maybe he's having a little trouble at home. He's like, well, "This is how I'll show her. I'll get the king to write up some kind of law, and I'll come home with that piece of paper with his signet ring on." Like, hey, hey, king says, "God, listen to me now. What are you gonna do about that?" I don't know. That maybe is just overreaching speculation, but perhaps we don't know why he over exaggerated. So, what counsel did they give the king? Look at verse nineteen. So they said they're going to do this. He says, if it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed. Meaning, it's an irrevocable law they're getting ready to draft up. That Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, which is funny, and let the king give her a royal position to another that is better than she. So in their eyes, a better woman is one who listens to the king. So when the decree was made by the king, it is proclaimed throughout all of his kingdom, for it is vast. All women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. I mean, any, anytime you have to create this law, uh, like these men are just not respectable men. Like you have a whole situation there. And it's funny, did you notice that they're making a law that Queen Vashti never has to go back into the king's presence again? Isn't that what she wanted? <laughs> Sucker. Like, and I think this is funny too. Notice that like they were so worried about it getting out. Like they could have had everyone swear to secrecy there and never gotten it out because like, hey, if you tell anybody, I'll kill you because they could have done that back then. But instead they write a law of what happened. And now everyone in 127 provinces will know that the king was humiliated. I think that's a little bit of God's sovereignty and, hum and humor right there. And so it's just dumb all around. Uh, and so Vashti, we're going to find out that she is going to be gone um, there's, there's some history writings on what happens to her afterwards. Is she, are, um, uh, what's, the, what's the evil king or the king known in Ezra and Nehemiah, Artaxerxes or whatever? The, the, yeah, say it again. There it is. I knew I was going to butcher that one too. Artie. Um, <laughs> they believe that she might have been pregnant with him during this encounter and like that's, like that's where that came from, but I don't know. A lot of speculation. So anyway, uh, the king responds to their counsel in our last two verses. He says in verse 21, this is the, king. The, king, the advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as the Memucan proposed. 
He sent letters to all the royal provinces, provinces provided that it, in his own script and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. So it, basically, he, uh, he sent out couriers all over the providence. Fun history fact. They believe that he's the original one that set up the postal service. Uh, remember, remember the old, seriously, remember the old postal service of like rain or sleet nor hell? Like, I think history says that he said, they, they said that way back then. So I don't know if like the postal service took that on. But anyway, they sent out this royal edict, which is uh, irrevocable and dumb, uh, to all the land to where it, like it's unchangeable. You couldn't do anything about this. This was the counsel that he received. Let's pause. It's not the main theme of the text, but let's pause because he took this counsel. And it seemed like these were just a bunch of yes men that will do whatever the king wants and it make them uh, higher up in the, in the chain of command or the food chain there and would please the king. And that way it just worked out in their favor. Basically, if not careful, we can do the same thing. Like we can get yes people around us to tell us what we want to hear, especially when we do a bunch of dumb stuff. Have you been there before? Like, I'm not going to ask these people over here. I'm going to ask these people over here because there's some things that I want to do. I want to do a lot of dumb. Like, listen, I've been a pastor for a long time. I've seen and heard it all. When people say, hey, I don't want to be married anymore. Like, my spouse, you know, they're just, they're not that fun. And like, I'm just not in love with them anymore. And like, you know, like it just, the excitement's all gone. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. But like, the Bible says something else. But like, but you know, my coworker, they said that like, yeah, I should just, I should just be happy. And like, happiness is my, you know, what I'm going to do. Well, that's not a very good line of defense when it comes to counsel for a Christian. So how should Christians get counsel? I'll give you three ways you might want to write them down. Are you ready? Way number one, God's word. God's word. Start like if you need, you got any major decisions or just decision in your life, always go to God's word first. Ask yourself some questions. What does God's word say about it, directly or indirectly? How does God feel about this? Is God for this or against this? Wait, here's the here's the best question. Will this please God? That's a great question. First question. In this decision, will this please God? That's 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 it. Because that's pleasing God is is better than my happiness and my freedom. And I knew no one would amen that. It's true. Pleasing God is, is better than my instant gratification of happiness and freedom. Why is that? When we live a life to please God, it will produce happiness and freedom in our lives. It will not be instant in most situations. It will take a long time and may not be seen on this side of heaven. When we live to only please ourselves, it will bring unhappiness and the lack of freedom. You may have some freedom right now, but wait, oh wait, you're going to pay for it later. Am I right? Has anyone lived a little life before? Cool. Just me. Got it. But the first place we go, we go to God's word. Directly and indirectly, it's going to speak in a lot of situations. Second place we go, God's spirit. If you're a Christian, the third person of the Trinity lives and resides in you meaning God resides there. And so God leads us. He guides us. Those are the questions we got to ask it. But God's spirit is like, God, which, like, are, where, where are you leading me? Where are you urging me to? What, like, what, what are you bringing about? Like, what, what are you like, giving me peace about or stirring me on? We need to go to God's spirit. We need to ask those questions. Now, when we get the answers, it's good to go back to step one and, and bounce that off of God's word. Am I right? Because sometimes we may say things like this. Hey, you know, I feel like God's I feel like God's spirit is really leading me to, to you know, rob a liquor store. I feel, like, I feel like God's spirit is leading me to, to leave my spouse. I feel like God's spirit is leading me to go buy a Nickelback album or something like that. Listen, listen, listen. Wrong spirit. 
It's a spirit nonetheless. It's, it's a spirit nonetheless. It's, just, it's not the holy one. It's the wrong spirit. And so God's word, God's spirit. And the last one, God's people. Notice I said God's people last. I know, I, man, I do the same thing sometimes. I'll have something going on. i hey, Matt, man, I got this going on in my life. And sometimes if I'm not careful, I'll be like, ah, I didn't even go to God first. Like, what is wrong with me? I'm the pastor. I'm supposed to do this. And like, sometimes we want to go to, to God's people first. Get there, absolutely. But uh, start with God's word and God's spirit. But then when you get to God's people, we need people in our lives that will look at us and hear us out and be like, hey, man, can I be honest? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, you, you, you need those people, like someone that won't be like, yeah, man, whatever you want to do, whatever pleases you, follow your heart and all that kind of stuff. No, you need someone to say, stop, brother, stop, sister. That's death you're going towards. That's going to be death of relationships or death of self or death of soul or death of peace or death of your family. Like, no. Now, the question I have for you is, do you have that kind of counsel in your life? Do you have someone who will be honest with you? If you do not, you're here. Like, like, you need people in your life. That's why we have community groups. That's why there's cohorts. That's where opportunities to serve and connect with one another. That way you can make a friend and you can have someone speaking into your life and helping you guide and navigate. Man, listen, if you don't have this person, let me tell you what you're going to be like. You ready? I'm going to tell you exactly what you're going to be like. You are a three-legged gazelle out on the plains of Africa and you're going to get eaten. The lion prowls around, man, looking for people to devour. And like, you, you ain't even got to run a chance. You're down a leg. And so you need this. But let me just tell you, let me just tell you, this text is not about seeking wide counsel, but I think it's a nice implication for us. It's not about that. It's been so hard to write this message. But as we end chapter one, it's kind of this feeling of, well, goodbye, Vashti. Hello, Esther. She's about to enter the soap opera. Could you imagine Esther at this time period? She has no idea what is going on. None. She has no idea that she is potentially going to be ushered into in the queen's spot. She has no idea what God is doing in the background, and yet he is doing it masterfully. He's pushing and moving and changing hearts and do all those sorts of things. And so what happens in chapter one sets in motion a chain of events that will ultimately result in the deliverance of God's people. We read chapter one, and it's like, this is just a horrible story. This is, like a, this is like a days of our lives or a Santa Barbara as the world turns or young and the restless. Man, why do I know so many soap operas? That's so weird. It's my mom. But the idea is this. No, God is at work in the background. He will keep his promises. I mean, think about it. If there were no feast, there would be no drunk king. No drunk king, no call to his wife, no call to his wife, no refusal, no refusal, no anger king, no anger king, no foolish counsel, no foolish counsel, no Vashti leaving, no Vashti leaving, no Esther, no Esther, no Jews, no Jews, no Jesus, no Jesus, no hope. See how important every little bit of life is? So important. Yet, what God is showing us here is this. This story is all about God's providence to save his people in order to fulfill his promise to send the Savior, Jesus, to save a people for himself. And that would be me and you. That's what the story is all about. God's working in the background. Last thing about Jesus, and we'll go to the table. Remember I told you earlier that Jesus, we should contrast Jesus with King Ahasuerus. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the true king. He is the king of kings, and his people are his bride. And so we, the church, are known as his bride. Now, King Ahasuerus, what he did was he sent seven servants to go get his wife but, uh, so he could parade her around as like a sex object to crown of drunken men. 
The king cared nothing for his wife. He was not a good lover nor friend to his wife. He was ready to expose her to shame and just all, you know, just awfulness. When she refused to come, the king had her sent away, banished. In contrast, Jesus didn't send his servants. You know what Jesus did? He left heaven. He left the palace. He left the riches and came to us in poverty to come and rescue us. And yet, in John chapter 1, it says that his own people refused him. Now, Jesus could have done the same thing as the king and be like, oh, banish them all. But Jesus didn't do that, did he? Because if he did banish them all that refused him, what would happen to all of us? Be bad. But what does he do? He's like, you know what? I'll take the banishment on their behalf. And Jesus, he goes and dies on the cross. He takes our punishment. He is ostracized from his father in those moments to where he's taking our punishment. He dies willingly on the cross in order for us to be reconciled to him. King Jesus is the king of kings, not this chump here. We don't even deserve it, and yet he does this for us. And then he says, there's a day that he will return. And you think about the king's feast, and like it's like six months long, and it's lots of parties, and it's like great stuff, and got the royal wine. Ain't nothing compared to what Jesus is going to throw for us. As a matter of fact, the Bible gives us a picture of this feast. Now, I want, I want you to set your imagination and your wonder on this feast that he's going to throw for us when we return to him. Look what it says in Isaiah 25, verse 6. I want, I want maybe just close your eyes and just hear this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. Now, what is that covering? The veil that is spread over all nations. What is the veil? He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. This is the king of kings. Not that king in the story, not any kings we have now to be trusted. No, we have the king of kings who will, who will eventually kill death completely, wipe away every tie to ear. Come on, tie. Tear from our eye. He's not going to wipe away every tie. I'm in trouble. Wipe away every tear from every eye and set the banquet feast for us for eternity. So I want to pray for us. And then uh, we got a lot coming up in the weeks to come. The story's really going to start to take off. So let's pray and let's go to the Lord's table and enjoy this feast together. <laughs> oh, Father, thank you so much that you are just so kind and gracious and that... Um, it's just amazing that you use people like us for your mission and your way. And I think about the story of Esther, the people that you would use there. You use the good, bad, evil, and indifferent. You do not let anything go unused. You render every bit of um, the juice out of it for your glory and for your people's good. May we always remember that. Even as we read this story, as confusing as it is sometimes, um, as scandalous as it is sometimes, it's just this beautiful picture of you at work. And may we be reminded, if you're working in that scenario, then for sure we can trust that you're working in our scenarios. So God, I know it's easy to get to a place where you feel like there's no hope because we feel like you're distant or you're not with us. God, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters who feel like that. God, I just pray that you would just give an extra measure of your presence where we can, we can just know that you're there or just, just help us live by faith knowing that your work for our good, even when times are tough, even when it seems bad. 
God, I pray for the marriages of Grace Point Church. This, these past seasons have been hard for marriages. They've been hard. So God, I just, I just pray for us as a church. We'd have a high view of marriage. That men and women will be treated well, husbands and wives. That there will be no demoralizing, dehumanizing, objectifying. God, that we would see each other as image bearers of you. Dignity and respect just honor to one another and submission in, in right ways that honor you and glorify you. So God, I just pray you'd be with marriages now and help open up those lines of communication for friends and lovers to be friends and lovers once more. And God, as you're doing all this, may we just be reminded that you are for us, even as the songs we sang earlier, you're for us and that you love us. And you're doing this for our good, for our joy, and for the good of the world. And we pray all this for the glory of Jesus in his name. Amen.